Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, the markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovation in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this edition, Oppenheimer's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Team joined together for a sustainability panel debut, featuring Colin Rush, Managing Director, Senior Research Analyst, and Head of Oppenheimer's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Franchise. Also, Kristen Owen, Executive Director and Senior Analyst. And lastly, Noah Kay, Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on September 18, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. This is Colin Rush. I head up Oppenheimer Enco's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Team. And in celebration of our third annual Sustainability Summit, I'm joined today with Noah Kay and Kristen Owen, who I've had the pleasure of working with for a very long time. Just by way of background, the Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization practice started in 2007 with a very simple thesis around IP displacing natural resources. And we've evolved this over the course of many years, uh, starting with Noah in 2009 and Kristen back to 2015, to really looking at sustainability and disruption in the materials, power, and industrial sectors. So today, we're going to get into some of the, the key elements that we're thinking about right now and some of the important drivers that we think are going to impact our stocks and the, the overall economy over the next decade. So, you know, when we think about net zero guys and the the scope and scale of these markets, you know, we're thinking about things or I'm thinking about things on the energy storage market right now of 8x growth, you know, between now and 2023, still 4x growth on solar over the same time period. And EVs just really getting started, you know, and so seeing something on the order of 8 to 10x growth in EVs as well. You know, I would love to hear from both of you on what you're seeing in your coverage universe around, you know, that growth and the the scope and scale of uh, the endeavor of reaching the zero emissions economy. Yeah. So I'll pick up the ball here and just touch briefly on infrastructure, which I think you know, tying into what you said about energy storage and just what we need to build out in order to support a net zero economy. It's as much about being efficient with how we're thinking about materials for infrastructure as it is building more resilient infrastructure with climate change in mind. I mean, these are long-lived assets and, and we need to think about how do these assets respond in a changing environment. As I look to, to agriculture, you know, we've seen other industries looking to agriculture as a potential source of offsets, just given the soil carbon capture opportunity. But we think really to move the needle here, we need to be looking at insets rather than offsets. In other words, focusing on those enabling technologies that reduce the greenhouse gas footprint across all points of the supply chain. And in ag, that means improving land productivity while reducing the reliance on synthetic fertilizers, which account for roughly 70% of greenhouse gas emissions on a typical farm. Noah, what would you add from your perspective? Okay, thanks, Kristen. You know, I think the best way to approach a global problem like greenhouse gas emissions is to try to break it down into more manageable problems. But the truth is energy consumption generates 
73% of total quote, greenhouse gas emissions. And the first line of opportunity is energy efficiency. If we just focus on buildings, which account for 37% of global CO2 emissions, you know, the cost of traditional energy efficiency measures is still two to three times cheaper than retail electricity consumption for industrial customers, three to four times cheaper for commercial customers, and the scope of the opportunity is massive. Now, we're just looking at office space alone. Over a billion square meters of office space need to be retrofit by 2050 to meet net zero carbon goals. That's a $17 trillion investment. We're talking about increasing the retrofit rate to 3% of buildings per year. Right now, it's less than 1%. And so you know, the growth opportunities for our coverage are manifold. We're looking at companies like Amoresco and Hannon Armstrong that are funding comprehensive building retrofits. As HVAC systems, the largest contributor to building greenhouse gas emissions, energy efficiency retrofits, electrification of heating through heat pumps. These are all demand drivers for the coverage. Uh, we're bullish on heat pumps, which still need less than 10% of global heating needs in buildings. So you've got HVAC companies like JCI Carrier and Train as beneficiaries. And, and I think resource efficiency is a core principle of the circular economy. And that's something we've discussed on earlier podcasts, but seems to be growing ever more relevant as a framework across the coverage not only in terms of resource efficiency and materials use, but also just design-led product and process technology, and of course, the use of renewable inputs. So, Kristen, where are you seeing industries and companies operationalize circular principles in a material way? So, one of the areas that we particularly look at in agriculture is making sure that we're talking, first and foremost, about land productivity. We are not increasing global acreage that can be utilized for agriculture at the same pace that we're increasing the population. So really have to talk about productivity first and foremost. But where we tend to focus on this idea of circularity is in some of the downstream process. Uh, we want to ensure that every kernel of grain that is produced is utilized to its maximum potential so that nothing is lost. Um, it's estimated that roughly a third of food is wasted or lost somewhere along the supply chain. So how do we find ways to valorize what would historically have been viewed as waste products. And I think that really ties to this idea of circularity. Rather than throwing something in the landfill or rather than creating a product that, that has no current use today, can we turn that into something that is a higher value feedstock for synthetic biology or for animal feed or for just making better use of that input rather than turning it into waste? Colin, what would you add? You know, it's, I go back to, you know, some of the things that Noah wrote about in his white paper on the circular economy about just doing more with less. And so there's so many areas where this is working right now in my coverage universe. One of the clear examples is around lithium processing. Yeah, you know, Tesla is trying to commercialize a pressure leaching process, which essentially eliminates the, the use of solvents in the processing of lithium. It just eliminates a lot of truck rolls in terms of trucking product in and out of that facility. And it ultimately is going to you know, de-risk their supply chain. And so it's not only ultimately going to be lower cost, but also will be cheaper and more resilient. You know, on, on the battery pack side, we're looking at companies like Aspen with their thermal barrier technology, which is called Pyrothin, also st structurally supporting battery packs. And so they're able to reduce the battery pack size, which means you need less content in the battery to actually do the duty cycle in the vehicles. It's just optimizing design, you know, and, and process efficiency. We certainly are looking at um, the lithium recycling opportunity over, over the course of time. As lithium begins to look a lot like lead, where over 95% of the lead used in the, the economy is actually recycled. And that's starting to ramp, but we're still in the build-out phase in lithium. But for us, it's really around industrial 
processes and, and designing material out of the products. And so that's one of the things that, that I've seen historically, um, you know, just from a technology development perspective, is to never bet against the engineers, that there are always ways to take cost out with legacy technologies and do more with less. And you, as you both know, we've really focused on technology adoption cycles and uh, the, the cadence of technology commercialization. And we're certainly seeing that uh, in the battery space right now. We've seen it historically with solar um, moving quickly and, and the EV space has been you know, choppy, but uh, also moving very quickly here in the last five, six years. So Noah, you know, what are you seeing in your coverage universe in terms of areas where you're seeing real technology cycles and the cadence of those technology cycles and potential for acceleration at this point? That's a great question. I think broadly speaking, the convergence of enterprise management with individual asset management is, is just a mega trend, right? We've always said that you can't fix a problem, you can't measure. And so connectivity has become almost table stakes, right, for pretty much every company we cover, the ability to connect and measure and monitor assets and then improve their performance if you can. Whether that's a Rockwell, which is, you know, seeing the connected enterprise evolve. Today, you have less than 15% of manufacturing assets actually connected to the enterprise, you know, or digital twins, which I know Kristen has spent a lot of time on and can talk about. I see it in my coverage with, you know, J Train and JCI doing sophisticated energy modeling to be able to better improve the performance of uh, you know, buildings. I, I just think there are so many opportunities still to harvest from just connecting the assets, let alone optimizing their performance. And I think that we will continue to see investments across the coverage in smarter, faster moving platforms using AI, uh, but it has to start with the connection to the real world assets. Kristen, what would you add? Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with that sentiment that connectivity really is table stakes. And it's that necessarily sort of foundational technology that you need to be able to leverage newer tools like artificial intelligence or even machine learning, which I think is something we see quite a bit across our space. How do you unlock the power of network effects or accelerated learning cycles without faster compute? I mean, it's, it's been one of the enabling technologies that, uh, uh, that has allowed us to think about commercializing artificial intelligence. You know, CRISPR is another one that we hear about a lot, and it's something that certainly in my space is something that is the opportunity set is increased exponentially by like AI, really as an enabler for bending the, the, the time limits of biology, enabling that faster cycle time, and really taking full advantage of the genetic network that we have available to us, whether that's in agriculture or thinking about all of the wealth of, of long-lived infrastructure that exists and using that to create a digital twin. So these are really enabling technologies that we think about that as we think about faster cycle time development, you know, that's something that is going to be driven by our ability to collect data and data requires that sort of connectivity thread. You know, sort of tying it back to what you said, Colin, about, you know, doing more with less, this in some ways comes down to a question of automation. It comes down to labor and labor availability. 
And so when we think about doing that, that more, that notion of doing more with less, labor is one of the big pain points that we talk about right now. I appreciate the transition here to talking about labor, especially given what's going on with the, the auto industry right now, but also just the scope and the magnitude of what we're seeing in terms of infrastructure transition. You know, the, the amount of construction that's going to happen over the next two decades to really get to the zero emissions economy is really pretty extraordinary. You know, and so looking at, you know, things like Scholl's connector technology uh, on the solar side, which is really s- facilitating shorter cycle times out in the field for utility scale solar or charging infrastructure to measurement and verification technologies like we're seeing with AVA, with some of their LIDAR, the 4D LIDAR. And we're seeing that's getting integrated into any number of manufacturing applications on the, on the metrology side. And, and then ultimately thinking about you know what happens as you move manufacturing from lower cost regions in many ways, uh, like Asia for batteries into the US and, and Europe, where you have stricter environmental standards, you've got you know challenges around around producing batteries, which are really rooted in material science and, and nanoparticle you know, precision uh, scaling at large volumes. How do you really do that in a cost-effective way over time? And, and that's something that you know, we've got in, in the, the front of mind right now is, is the US and, and Europe will look to have a better position in the global economy around the zero emissions materials. You know, and we've got roughly 70% of battery manufacturing and supply chain in Asia trying to move some of those critical enabling technology manufacturing elements into North America or Western Europe, you know, the automation is going to be crucial to how we're able to do that as a, as a broader economy. And so those are things that are front of mind for us. And it's, I think, an important area of innovation, you know, going back to these learning cycles around uh, how AI really gets implemented into manufacturing processes and, and evolution of those processes, you know, to, to really keep these economies robust and and advantaged in you know in the the coming decades. So Noah, you know, what are you seeing on your side, you know, from an automation perspective, having done a, a lot of work on that, as we all know, given Rockwell and other areas. Thanks, Colin. It's it, there's really a nexus here of past life experience. You both know this, but I, I spent five years in D.C. policy lobbying for clean energy, and I also spent a couple of years in my family's HVAC business. And so right now we're seeing the U.S. doing industrial policy at scale for the first time in my life. And we don't have enough skilled technicians and laborers to make the transition. And so automation is going to be necessary. But frankly, we also need to reinvest in trades education for the workforce. So there's some obvious beneficiaries. Uh, you've got folks like Rockwell who are you know, clearly seeing a lot of share and wallet gain as economy transitions into uh, domestic battery manufacturing and clean energy manufacturing. They have good content share in that. I would say automation broadly is a solution for coverage anywhere where there's a high labor content portion of the, the cost structure. They even see it in the waste coverage. Right? And I think waste management naturally attracting five to 7,000 people, which is a huge portion of the labor force through automation is a major trend. They're doing it in recycling where you have labor savings, but also just get a better quality recycled bale out of it. They're doing it in their fleet where transitioning from residential, you know, rear end loaders, which are dangerous to automated side loaders, reduces labor content, but also improves safety and productivity. 
there's so many opportunities for automation and as both devices and the software that manages them continues to get more sophisticated, yeah, I think we're going to be really amazed at the innovation. Now, one of the things that we do have to keep in mind when we're looking at these cycles of investment is rates. Right? And I think many stocks within our coverage have shown high sensitivity to interest rates and the cost of capital. In my coverage of the yield coast, right, where there's a potential duration mismatch at the corporate level between assets and the corporate debt tenor that is you know, shorter. So I guess where in the sector do you see a disconnect between the performance of company stocks on the one hand and the growth outlook for their businesses? Where in the coverage are you seeing higher interest rates have a more material impact on the business outlook? And I think that, you know, $10,000 question is, but does the sector ultimately just need lower rates for these stocks to work? Or can stocks thrive in a higher for longer rate environment? Kristen, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I, I mean, we're looking at industries just across the board. If you talk to any one of the three of us that are, generally speaking, capital intensive, uh, some of these industries tend to have longer cycle development times. And that duration effect is really unavoidable in our space. And so I think what, what we've seen and what we anticipate we'll continue to see is just a degree of industry consolidation. Um, folks are tightening their belts and um, that that creates opportunity, I think, for some of this technology to advance. But it also means that um, we're going to see some of this shake out. And, and that is a function of, of the rapidly rising rate environment. You know, if I think about some of the, the brass tax fundamentals of what how that's impacted some of the stocks in our coverage, uh, certainly farm economics have been impacted by rising rates. We've seen that both in the sentiment indicators, but as well as the shift in purchasing behavior. So where are growers going to go to enable, you know, we've seen that in a shift of purchasing behaviors where growers are just buying what they need in more of a just-in-time fashion to limit the work and capital burden of higher prices and higher interest rates. We're seeing this too in the form of, of technology adoption. I mean, in terms of capital, farmers are actually fairly flush. I mean, we've seen that in the net farm income statistics. This is not dissimilar to what I think we're seeing in the capital markets. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines, but the bar to invest has simply gotten higher. And the technologies that we're seeing, whether it's farmers or contractors or in manufacturing, the common technology that's being funded today is anything that enables sort of coming back to that idea of that labor efficiency. That's what we're seeing getting funded. And we're just having to, to set the bar higher in terms of what we're willing to invest in. Yeah, Kristen, I want to pick up on a couple of those threads on, on rates. You know, in the renewable space, obviously, project finance is a key driver for the unit economics, given the, the zero, zero cost fuels in a lot of these projects. But there's kind of two other major areas that we're seeing is one working capital, which you were mentioning. That's been a real issue for some of the smaller players, uh, particularly in the solar industry, where working capital challenges have turned into a, a slowdown in, in overall business. And that's a, a, that liquidity around the, the you know, kind of mid and lower tier of uh, business activity is really important around a stable, healthy economy. And I think that's something we want to watch from a macro perspective, certainly. But this element of software, you know, we talked about automation, but the use of data to drive efficiency around business processes is also something that we're seeing, you know, 
all over the place and particularly in the energy storage space where we're seeing energy management systems for stationary storage projects really emerge as as a way to optimize asset performance in lieu of higher rates right and so that's, that's something that we're watching here very very closely is that as rates go higher hard assets get more expensive just fundamentally and so how you can actually evolve the duty cycle for those hard assets into more revenue is is really critically important and software is one of those tools that we're seeing you know is is a critical enabler of that so as we get to the conference this week what i would love to hear from you guys are some picks here i can say i'm excited about aspen uh aspn is uh, a company that's made some real inroads with gm but is is quickly taking share with top 10 oems as an enabler of battery tech uh, battery pack technology I'm still very bullish on lithium, so Albemarle continues to be uh, a topic for us around the, the growth of batteries and, and demand. And we're still very bullish on a lot of these software applications in and around the solar space. And so a name like Sunrun, which is you know suffered through some higher cost capital, but really has the leading virtual power plant uh, platform in the U.S. for residential solar serving the utility scale market, is a great idea. And and uh, they're in a position to drive a lot of growth. So, you know, why don't we go to you next, Noah, in terms of a couple of ideas that uh, listeners can take away with them. I mean, if you can be really excited about garbage, uh, I am. And I would say waste connections and waste management are two great names for us right now. They do pretty well when you're mid to late in the market cycle. And one of the technologies that both are investing in is renewable natural gas, which is an industry we've gotten a lot more bullish on in our work over the past couple of years, just as a very high ROIC investment. So that's one sector. I mentioned the HVAC names, particularly like Johnson Controls following its recent sell-off, and really the investment the company has made into the building Internet of Things being a digital platform that can optimize performance in buildings and make them much more efficient. And then that ties into another name, Amoresco, which we actually see as a play on both because they do energy efficiency, they do renewables, and they do renewable natural gas. So I think that checks all three boxes for me. I'm going to turn it over to Kristen. Yeah, the, the two names that, that I'll be at the conference that, that I think really hit a lot of these themes of understanding what a higher cost of capital environment looks like, but also building a business based on the need to create more resilient infrastructure and more resilient crops. Uh, the two names in that category, Local Bounty, you know, they've sort of found this sweet spot in the combination of vertical agriculture growing and horizontal uh, indoor growing, really with, with positive unit economics. And that's not something that, that we can say about this industry. I think that, it, that they ultimately become a compounder in this space. So that's local bounty. You know, the other that we'd highlight at the conference is BioSeries. They're an Argentinian-based crop protection and seed company, really building products for climate resiliency. So they've um, they they have developed a genetic for wheat and for soybeans that can grow in drought-stricken areas. And this is something that has become really important, especially in areas like Argentina, where we're coming out of one of the most severe droughts over the last three years. The last name that I'd highlight here is, is Bentley Systems. And this is our top pick overall. You know, this really hits on a lot of the themes that we've talked about today. How do we build more resilient infrastructure? How do we use automation and AI to enable workforce productivity and to ensure that our infrastructure is best utilized. So that's a name that we really like and 
you know, will obviously benefit from some of the IIJA tailwinds. And I think the the IRA benefits that we we've gone into in other podcasts. So that's where I'd leave it. Colin, any any remarks there? Excellent. I think that's it, guys. It's always a pleasure to to talk with you. You know, having the the working relationship established and the collaborative dynamic amongst the team, I, I think, really is a, a pleasure and, and a real competitive advantage for us being able to talk about how these technologies all fit together. So we'll look forward to ongoing work with you guys on a daily basis, and looking forward to every having a chance to talk with everyone who's listening on the line right now. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Colin and Noah. Um, it's really an interesting time to, to be talking about these topics. Colin, as always, it's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you at the summit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, and so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode, and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.